Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Sarah Lau was the 2020 Teen Poet Laureate of Georgia. Now, the Westminster School Senior has won national recognition. First prize in Narrative Magazine's annual writing contest. Later in the program, Sarah Lau will read and tell us about Triptych, the poem that brought her the honor. Chef Hugh Atchison reflects on the difference between nutrition and nourishment, and we'll hear from Matt Terrell. He describes his new web series, Living the Dream, as a cross between Pee Wee's Playhouse and Martha Stewart. First, according to her artist statement, Amina McIntyre writes, as an urban Southern Black woman, specifically a native Atlantan, writing about Southern Black life and its diaspora. Her latest project is a play for out-of-hand theater and families first, a production called A Good Day. The playwright joins us now via Zoom. Amina McIntyre, welcome back to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Thank you. It's always good to be here. Always good to have you. Can you first tell us about the Families First organization? Absolutely. So Families First has been around for about 131 years and their goal has been to provide empowering solutions for Amer Atlanta's most vulnerable populations. And so they've done orphanages, they've worked with group homes, they also have worked to have communities that help families be supported. Their most recent endeavors, and I spoke with one of their directors, Lee Plot, the idea is that they're looking really to highlight the fact that they're working with families to be more resilient. And so they're wanting their families to, to understand not only what their resources are, but also to understand that Families First walks alongside with the families to help them to build their resilience and to be able to enter into the society that they need to enter into the way they need to um, with all that they have and knowing that there are people there rooting for them, not just as a service, but as a full network. Mm. How did you work with them to create this play? 
Absolutely. Um, when Out of Hand contacted me, it was for a collaboration with Families First. And we did several interviews, actually um, mentioned Lee Plot, but we also spoke with some of their workers and some people to kind of talk about their experiences of helping families in particular, and also just hearing a lot of ideas about what they're wanting to do, how they're wanting to be, to move forward, how they're hoping to engage families. And so people also understand that Families First does more than just helping people through the foster care system, but also helping to do more work. And so it was, um, it was very interesting to hear how we can help humanize the experience and to see what the families and the common struggle of some of the families might be. Mm, I can imagine. Would you give us a synopsis of a good day? Sure. So A Good Day, it is a, a short play, but it's also something that we filmed. And so it kind of looks more like a film if you see it, but it actually really started out just more as a 20 minute play. And the idea is, is Torrance, who's the young man, it's his 16th birthday. But because he turned 16, it's, he's concerned about being separated from his mom, Maxine. They live in a shelter. And so they're trying to try to sort out what that living situation is. And Tori and, and Tori, as Torrance is known, and Maxine talk with their first, their family first navigator, Nina, to see how they can encourage themselves, remember their resilience, and to help to eradicate poverty and systemic racism. The biggest point that I do want to make, and the reason why 16th birthday is important, um, and I've, I've worked with shelters before, but once a young man turns 16, they are considered to be an adult. And so they're not allowed to be in a women and children's shelters anymore. They have to go to the adult male shelters. And that's something that can be very traumatic for a 16 year old, one, to be separated from their mother, but two, to have to be alone in homeless shelter systems. That's kind of the backdrop for why the 16th birthday was very important here. Out of Hand Theater doesn't have a dedicated performance space by design. All performances are held at different people's homes. This one, as you mentioned, was filmed. It will be completely virtual. On which platform will the play stream? My understanding is that they will stream via Zoom, but what you have to do is you have to sign up via Eventbrite and you will get the link and then it will stream kind of the way it would be viewed as a home. It'll kind of be like a small in-home party via Zoom, if that's, I believe, is how they're supposed to be streamed. And in fact, did you film it in someone's home? So Lee Osario directed it, and it was actually filmed. This one is actually a departure for how they normally do their work. They actually filmed it on site at the family's first office. Ah. I won't ruin it by saying this, but they have some some outdoor footage, but also some footage of the actors inside the offices. And actually, they edited it so that it looks like the actors are all in the same space at the same time. But because of COVID precautions, they actually aren't. So it's, it's, it's going to be pretty fascinating to watch to just see how that was accomplished as well and how it still is a coherent piece of work. Am I correct? There will be a Q&A at the end of each show? Yes, that's the, the normal out-of-hand model, that there at least is some, some opportunity for interaction with the artists in particular, and this one will have a Q&A specifically with a representative of Families First. And do you know what topics Families First will address? 
I imagine that they will probably talk a little bit about the 20 minute play that they will see, but also probably talk a little bit about the works that Family First does and how they can be a little bit more proactive in kind of working with families and even possibly how audiences can help to support Families First and the persons that they touch. I mentioned your artist statement in our intro. In your bio and statement, you write that you are a womanist artist minister. How is your relationship with faith and ministry demonstrated in your creative work? For me, the arts and ministry are hand in hand. Of course, most of us know that theater came out of the church initially, and so there's a very ritualistic space about theater to begin with. One of the things that I always like to do is to write plays or to be involved with projects that somehow heal to some degree, whether it is healing through laughter or healing by delving deep into a particular project and helping people to find whatever tools that they need within themselves or find the conversation. And so for me, I always come from a a spiritual perspective in that way. And as a minister, one of the things that I always work on is finding ways to create spaces for people to come and do the encounters that they need to have. So I believe in God encounters, but I feel like no one can really tell you what that looks like or how they do that. They can just kind of give you the tools to be able to do it and walk alongside you as you work with that. I know you are a chaplain in Nashville. Do you use theater within your church? Absolutely. So I do a hybrid of both. So I'll talk about in church, I actually write um, short plays and I write short films and things like that for my church. I do a lot of worship planning. And so I actually plan worship sometimes and, and people will laugh at me. They're like, wow, you do this a different kind of way. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I worked in the theater. So we're going to plan worship with some elements of understanding you know, what this means and with the intention of knowing what the purpose of it is so that it's not necessarily just sitting there, but it might be including putting arts into worship so that you receive an art piece that you put together by the time that is a communal art piece by the end of worship or actually training other ministers who want to write specifically for worship in that space. And also too, as a chaplain, one of the things that I've done is I've actually taken When I go into rooms and I work with people, especially if they've experienced a trauma of any sort, we actually do things called arts and medicine, where we walk into a room and if someone's having a certain thing, we might bring a box in or we might decide to write a poem or we might decide to write a play. And very often these elements will allow people the distance between themselves and their trauma to write or to express what it is they need to express and to make the decisions that are need to be made. I often talk about the fact that there was a woman who was making some decisions about end of life things as it related to her husband and she could not make those decisions. We sat down, we wrote a poem together and within the next day or so, she was able to kind of process her emotions and feelings and was able to help make some of the decisions that she needed to make. And so, and if it had not been for my arts background, I don't think that it would have been as effective because she was refusing doctors. She was refusing almost everyone else who came into the room until we actually brought the arts component inside of there. Arts, spirituality, faith, all come together in your life's work. Absolutely. I'm hoping always to continue to to do it. And um, whether it is in the theaters or whether it's at church, I feel like it's just something that's always going to be a part of all of the way my personality works. Over the past year, we have seen too many horrific examples of systemic racism. 
and how it appears in so many aspects of American lives. How does this play address systemic racism regarding family and children's services? One of the things that happens is when you go into shelters and you go into other places, you realize that the majority of the people at shelters are typically predominantly Black. Now, there are other groups of people, but I would say about 75% of most shelters are predominantly Black, and most often there are a lot of Black women and children. So for me, understanding and making the decision to have a Black family talk to a Black navigator um, was very important because we felt like it was reflective of some of what was there. That's not to say that it's the only story, but for us recognizing that sometimes Black families may not have some of those resources, whereas some other cultures may have families that might be able to take people in or may have other people who might be able to help in some ways. It's something that was specifically important for us to address here. The other part of it is understanding, too, that, and especially in Maxine's story, that even though she's a mother She's not necessarily the quote unquote stereotypical welfare mother. She is someone who has gone to school. She has a degree. She just fell on hard times, which is also a narrative you don't typically hear about outside. This is something, a narrative you don't hear about outside of homeless shelters. But if you talk to a lot of the shelter women, they'll tell you, oh, I've had this. I lost that. And for me, understanding that there are particular stereotypes about who is already in shelters, also understanding how people might feel in shelters or that people may want to saying that, hey, you know, not everybody wants to abandon their children, not everybody wants to give up their families, but also understanding that there are also some specific sensitivities in terms of Black family and what community looks like and who to trust and who not to trust because of how systems may have failed them in the past. And so engaging in that particular conversation by saying this is a particular Black family that is fighting a certain kind of Black way and that women and children do need to be protected and women and children do need to work with their community. And I think in doing womanist work, part of what we do is say that we want to work with healing the full community and how that works by centering the stories of Black, Black women particularly, but also Black families, Black communities, Black voices. Everybody has had a time at which they were broken down or may have lost everything, but even still understanding that some of the barriers might be a little bit difficult for, pers- for, for Black people in particular. So should we feel uplifted just from the title, A Good Day? I think so. Even at the end, and, and I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying this, that even though all the problems aren't solved on that particular day, we should count the good days because the good days are the ones that will get you through whatever you are going through at the time. Um, And I think that just kind of like a good piece of theater or just like um, the intentions of most church services, that is also part of the intent. And so I'm hoping that this does at least help to uplift people, but also at least gives people a little bit of hope in the process. Amina McIntyre, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's always good to be here. Playwright Amina McIntyre. Her production of A Good Day with Out of Hand Theatre will stream this Saturday and Sunday. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... The 2020 Teen Poet Laureate of Georgia has now won national recognition.
Sarah Lau is up next on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Narrative Magazine publishes works by established and emerging writers. Their annual Tell Me a Story high school writing competition is usually an essay contest, but this year was opened to poetry submissions. Westminster senior Sarah Lau was this year's first prize winner with her poem Triptych. She was also the 2020 Teen Poet Laureate of Georgia. When I spoke with Sarah via Zoom, she explained how she happened to enter the contest. I've known about the contest for a couple of years, but I've always known it was also the essay contest format. So I, I wasn't really interested in writing an essay to submit. But then one day, I think back in January, I was just scrolling through Twitter mindlessly and I saw a lot of narrative um, tweets about it. And I saw that it was like a poetry contest this year and I mainly write poetry. So I was very interested in that. And I think um, I procrastinated on it for a while until it was the last day to submit. And so I emailed my creative writing teacher last minute. and was like, hey, can we um, do this really fast? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, for sure. So we just put something together really fast and submitted and just sat around and waited for the results. Yeah. Wait, you didn't put the poem together <laughs> Oh, fast. no. <laughs> okay. When did you write Triptych? It's actually pretty old. I started it last summer and it started out in very different. It's gone through quite a few revisions now. Um, so it's quite unrecognizable, but um, I wasn't working on it like, you know, every day for like a, several months, but I did start it back in the summer. <laughs> I'm curious. You said it was in January when you finally decided to submit. Yeah. Was this after the presidential inauguration? I think so, yes. I think it was late January. So had you seen or heard Amanda Gorman read her poem? Oh, yes, I think I did. It was very interesting to watch. I remember it was so viral. It was so inspiring, and I was honestly very very shocked that like poetry has only become such a big thing and I'm really glad that it's more at the forefront of people's minds these days 
which I think is a really good thing because poetry, you know, asks for people to slow down, think more deeply about things. And I think we really need that these days. Well, and there have been poets laureate. We have had inaugural poems, but Amanda Gorman. Yes, so young. This very youthful face on it. And here (laughs) you are. Are are you even 18? Uh, Yes, I turned 18 in late December. So I am an adult now. (laughs) I should say, and still quite a bit younger than Amanda Gorman. Sarah, would you read your poem, Triptych? Oh, for sure. Let me pull it up. And before your reading, perhaps I was wondering if you could talk about the inspiration. Yeah. So I was thinking about escape generally. I mean, back in the summer, I wasn't thinking about it super specifically. But it was still during quarantine time, and I was thinking about a lot of my how I interact with domestic spaces because I thought it was interesting how COVID-19 has really forced us into self-quarantine. And the house is kind of a sanctuary now against the virus, but at the same time, you know, we're all very, very bored and tired of that. And so now we're seeking new escapes from that. And I was writing a lot about I think language in this poem also. Poetry for me has always been a form of escape ever since I started writing. And I think like language has been, is an escape on the level that it's a way to get out of my mind and, you know, communicate with other people. So that's one way. And I was just trying to write through a lot of what I was feeling during the time. So it moves through a lot of different things, I would say. Would you read it? I'd love to. (laughs) Triptych one. I come home in the evenings to mother scraping my scalp for God. To ward off the lice, she pulls my hair up with a ribbon and tells me to face the home altar. The lamplight spilling and God's face peeking out, yolk-colored and shameless. Because I study faces, I count lashes until dark icons link and molt in my image. A specter, no. A parasite, no. A reckless fluency in pigment, yes. The altar shimmering into a mirror. I let vanity out to take hold of what it must. Leave a pair flagrant and bitten through as offering. Two. Twice in a sporadic dream, I turn sexless in fear. As an intimacy worn bitter and blue, nights I lie to touch myself without reason. As in blameless light, silk ribbons unspooled into the whip of a flagellant. A mother lies in her rough halo of hair, limbing the fringes of my shadow into thread. Mother could never recognize who was there. Three, her grief, a steepled beast with no tongue. I teach her with the prongs of a fork how to pronounce the TH and think and place the stress of amen there on the men all the luscious syllables to sickle for vanishing. But mothers always liked the tongue of the god in the television best, how the family gives a circle of thanks, how the mother's tongue pushes out her cheek as if it rolled around a stone to uncork her speech. The altar shimmering into a mirror 
I let vanity out to take hold of what it must. Leave a pair, fragrant and bitten through, as offering. Would you explain that reference? I don't know. I think when I write, you know, I get very lost in the image. A lot of my work is, I think, a little, the image dominates a lot of my work. And I think what I was trying to say there was that a lot of times when I'm in quarantine and I'm just looking at everyday objects, I find myself actually seeing myself in there or I find myself reflected in there. And it's just, I think, a way of me trying to understand myself. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, mirrors and how it feels to stare at yourself for so long that you can't really recognize yourself. It's just like when you focus on something for too long and it starts to turn very strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm curious, is the offering to Buddha or oh. Mary? I think it's a bit vague because religion plays a very complex role in my life. So my family is not very religious, but we do have a couple of Buddha statues or like figurines around the house just for like tradition. But then I do go to like a Christian school. So I've, you know, taken a lot of Bible classes and like sat through some services, but I was never super religious. I was hoping you'd talk about the structure. A triptych is a work of art divided into three sections. In visual art, often three carved panels hinged together. Why did you choose triptych yeah. for the form of this poem? So I would say that I changed it into a triptych fairly late in the revision state. This poem started off as even more structured than it actually is right now, with a lot of rhyme, surprisingly, but I took all of that out. And so now as a triptych, I wanted there to be a sense of structure, but I wanted there to still be a big difference between every section and a lot of like freedom in the way each structure, um, each section is structured and like the voice of it. And I wanted that to be clear. So that's... Um, mainly why I chose a triptych and also because of the religious connotations um, that a triptych has. And I think I ultimately am very happy with that decision because I think it ha offers a great deal of freedom in this poem while there's still this underlying structure. The Salvadoran poet and Narrative Prize winner himself, Javier Zamora, worked with each of the contest finalists, I read. What was it like working with Javier? Javier is just so brilliant. It's so interesting, actually, to um, talk with anybody about my work, uh, because I think when we were talking, he was asking me, he let me first ask um, questions I had about this poem and like where I should revise. And surprisingly, you know, we had very different questions and concerns about this poem. And I think that was largely because, you know, I spent a very long time on this poem. And Javier really helped me, you know, hone into what might have been um, a weaker part and where, how to like fix that. Um, 
And then Javier, I really also just love talking to him about poetry and like the life of a poet in general. It's very rare to get the chance to hear about, I guess, like the industry part of being a poet as like a teenager. And it was really interesting for him to to hear like his advice on, you know, how to really uh, continue this as like an adult and continue pursuing this passion. In the poem, you make reference to helping your mother pronounce T-H. Yeah. <laughs> was, was your mo- that is the single most difficult combination in the English language. Definitely. Where, where was she born? Um, she was born in Shanghai, China. But I think, like, when I say T-H, like, I do mean, like, how my parents pronounce English. But at the same time, I've also also always had a big trouble pronouncing TH, even though I was born in America. I remember in kindergarten, I think the teacher always saying, you know, you got to press your tongue to the back of your teeth, I think, to say TH properly. And I really did not understand what she was saying. I think she explained it once and I was like not paying attention. <laughs> so for the next couple of years, I was like, I have no idea what she said. Oh, well, I wondered if being the child of Emma Gray's mm. and Javier having been born, well, he was born in El Salvador, wasn't yes. he? Yes, yes. If you connected on that level as children of immigrants. I think so, yeah. Javier also has like the additional experience of crossing the border as a child that I don't have. But we definitely, I think, share this common experience of feeling kind of like an outsider um, in terms of culture, language, etc. And I think that comes through in our work. How does it feel to have your work published in Narrative Magazine and featured on their podcast, Narrative Out Loud? Oh, I am so excited, so honored. I really love Narrative. It's one of my my favorite magazines to go to whenever I have like an itch in poetry I need to scratch. So I've been, you know, reading narrative for quite a few years. I've never submitted because <laughs> I was qu- quite intimidated. So I'm very happy that I am like among so many of my favorite writers you know, on narrative's um, website. And, you know, I can't wait for like people to read my poem. <laughs> It's very exciting. And you're also the recipient of the 2020 Georgia Poet Laureate's Prize. Yeah, (laughs) that was also a thing. All of this before graduating from high school. Do you know where you will be attending college? I am most likely going to Harvard University for college, yeah. I have heard of that, (laughs) and I also hear it's pretty good. Will you continue to write poetry? And and is it too early to say you want to pursue your love of literature? Mm, I think it's, I think I would definitely continue writing poetry because, you know, as I've said, it's been my form of escape for such a long time. And I don't think I could, you know, give that up anytime soon. I think in terms of pursuing, you know, English and literature, I would like to do that. I'm not sure 
how that would look, you know? So I think in college, I still want to explore and see what, you know, talk to some professors, see what my options are. And in the meantime, I'll just continue writing poetry, sending it out. <laughs> Hopefully someone will like to read it. Sarah Lau is a senior at the Westminster School. Her poem, Triptych, will be published in Narrative Magazine. You can also read the poem on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Still ahead this hour, Living the Dream, a new web series from Matt Terrell. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. How to Cook, Building Blocks, and 100 Simple Recipes for a Lifetime of Meals is the latest recipe book by the popular Canadian-born chef Hugh Atchison. His concern for the well-being and independence of his teenage daughters was the reason Hugh Atchison wrote the book. You know, I started writing a list for my kids about 10 years ago, and it's gotten to be, and this is a small atomizing of it, but it's just mantras for living. It's, it's ways to think about the world that I want them to look through the prism of, of the good that I've, I've figured out in this life so far and, and to just give them a helping hand and how to be a in, inclusive member of a community and a, and a part of a family and, and, and all these things. So it's just sort of, you know, it's ways to think about things. And, you know, if it's, if there's trash on the ground, pick it up. Or if it's no one has a loving memory of a meal of pizza pockets, I think it's just important to remind them about where the goodness is in the world. Would you want to read it? Do you want to talk about a few more highlights? Or should we save that for readers of How to Cook? You know, I mean, it goes through. There, there's, I have a much longer list that I pushed on Instagram years ago, which, you know, said it's instructions and wariness, some of them, but it's also things like learn how to use a chainsaw. It might come in handy someday. But, you know, these ones are tip well and salt is a flavor enhancer. So is MSG. There's nothing wrong with either in moderation. You know, you don't grocery shop while hungry. You know, it's things that our parents taught us, but Sometimes these things need to be written down so we remember. But the most poignant thing about having that list on Instagram is that I got a ton of messages about people mimicking that list and, and making their own for their own kids and posting on our fridge. And that becomes just a relevant family document for the entirety of everyone's lives within that household. And, and I think we need more of that these days. Oh, I think it's beautiful. My favorite item on the list is... Feed your friends and family. Feed kind strangers. Realize the power of giving nourishment. You know, nourishment is such a powerful word these days. You know, it, the, the pandemic has been so crazy for everyone. And everybody's working so hard to try and figure it out and deal with isolation and mental health. But, but the difference, the sincere difference between nutrition and nourishment nourish, is, is just so uh, amazingly abundant right now. Nourishment implies 
it's warmth, it's empathy, it's understanding. There's an emotional versus just the scientific aspect of nutrition, which is sustenance. But nourishment is another level that I think that we all are yearning for right now. And if there's anything that good that comes out of a pandemic, it's a willingness and a want for people to learn how to cook again, which we've seen across the country and across the world. Because, well, if you're locked in your house for 24 hours a day, you have to do something. Chef, restaurateur, and author Hugh Atchison. His latest book is How to Cook, Building Blocks and 100 Simple Recipes for a Lifetime of Meals. Now we'll talk to another cookbook author and creator of a new web series. Imagine Martha Stewart meets Pee-wee's Playhouse. That's how Matt Terrell describes his cooking and lifestyle show, Living the Dream. He joins us now via Zoom. Matt, welcome back to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Always a pleasure to be with you. Your new cooking show, Living the Dream, is about living your best life every day. It's inspired by classic PBS lifestyle shows. Why did you want to create Living the Dream? For a long time, I have been a huge fan of classic PBS cooking and lifestyle shows, especially ones that have a little bit of an aspirational quality to them. But I wanted to make my own version that was a bit more modern and took some of those aspirational qualities and made them a little bit more attainable for an average audience. So, for example, uh, instead of telling you, well, go buy this expensive cookware, I show you how to get high-end cooking appliances for just a few bucks in my show. Living the Dream was funded by a virtual arts initiative grant from Fulton County Arts and Culture. Did you always want to have your own show, Matt, or did this idea come to you during the pandemic? To be truthful, it's something I have wanted to do for a very long time, to have my own cooking show, but it was one of those things that felt so out of reach that I would never have the opportunity or funding to do it. And so when Fulton County Arts and Culture announced their virtual arts initiative grant, I thought, what a wonderful opportunity to finally try this idea out. And I think that for me, it was really a way to distill years of learning from watching these cooking shows and combine my own personality and my own vision of how I live for new and contemporary audiences. How would you describe your approach to cooking? Well, it's not semi-homemade is what I'll tell you, but I'm not going to be toiling over a hot stove, sweating and smelling like onions any day of my life, I'll (laughs) tell you that. I like to break down recipes into simple steps that can often be done days or weeks ahead of time. There's an idea from the Italian, uh, the Italian sort of Renaissance and Baroque era called sprezzatura, which is the um, the ideal of the courtier, which means kind of working hard to make it look like you're not working at all. And so a lot of my recipes and my show involve a little bit of pre-work so that when you do go to actually make dinner, it's really just throwing a few things together and heating it up. Mm. 
In the first episode, you teach viewers how to make gumbo, which you learned from your mom when you lived on Mississippi's Gulf Coast. How often did you and your mom cook together when you were growing up, Matt? Well, I think my mom would love to say that all of what I know from cooking, I learned from her. But honestly, it's just a few dishes like gumbo and fried chicken uh, that I got from her. You know, the bulk of my cooking experience came from watching cooking television. I spent a lot of time by myself as a kid. And I remember from age like, I think it was eight when we got Food Network at debuted where we lived in Mississippi. I was watching uh, Food Network all the time and learning from TV chefs like Emeril and the Too Hot Tamales, all these other great early TV chefs. And so there is a lot of things in my cooking show that do come from my mother, particularly gumbo. But for me, I would say I have a little bit more of a um, chefy outlook for my cooking, which definitely comes from the TV that I watched growing up. You mentioned PBS and cooking, but I don't see Julia Child references. Is that because she was before you were born? I've actually watched more Julia Child as an adult. Recently, I listened to her biography, which was a really wonderful book. And I know that a lot of people are influenced by her, but as an adult, when I've rewatched her shows, I'm constantly screaming at the television. It's like, no, Julia, don't do it. That's the wrong way. <laughs> what was wrong with Julia's ways? Just too much butter, too much heavy cream, mm. not enough herbs. You know, I think that her cooking is definitely a snapshot of the time that she was cooking in uh, the 1960s and 1970s. But for me, I definitely want a more modern take on what cooking is with what we have today. I really respect what she did in terms of making America even aware that good food exists. But for me, Julia Child is just the starting point of that entire culture revolution in food in America. And I'm referencing a lot of other people, including Julia, in my work. Yes. And in fairness to her with the butter and cream, to which I'll never object, she was the French chef, and, and that's what she studied. With each episode of Living the Dream, you share a backstory, and I noticed you wrote about how your travels to Mexico inspired some of your cooking, like the mole sauce you make on your Taco Tuesday episode. How has travel influenced your cooking, Matt? I would say some of the favorite dishes that my mom and I make today are things that we had when we've traveled through Europe and through Mexico and even in the US. For me, those dishes are really a great way to recreate and remember those times traveling with my mom. For example, when we went to Mexico, we had this really, really wonderful dinner at Pujol, which was a restaurant featured in Chef's Table on the Netflix show. And they are known for this mole madre that they make. They make a new mole every single day uh, which they serve on a plate 
And they also take the day's mole at the end of the day and combine it in this big pot and just cook it and cook it and cook it. Uh, and that's the mole madre, sort of like um, uh, an infinite pot of mole that just continues day after day. And the combination of the new mole, the day's mole, and the mole madre that's been cooking for so many, actually years, but by the time we went to Pujol, was so interesting and deep and refreshing and exciting that we had to recreate it when we got home. And that was one of the things that after I traveled to Mexico, I had to master was making mole. <laughs> I will tell you that when you go to Mexico, after you return, you will pretty much never eat a store-bought tortilla again. That was the first thing that I bought when I came back to the States was uh, stuff to make my own tortillas. And they are far superior to anything you can buy in a package. Of course. Now, along with each episode of Living the Dream, you share a guide. I won't call it a recipe. You, you share a guide for viewers to follow loosely. And if you don't follow recipes, you must be pretty comfortable with making mistakes in the kitchen. What have been some of your greatest discoveries through trial and error? So I, I do want to just jump off by saying that you do hit it on the nose that I don't necessarily provide recipes. I provide a general overlook of techniques and ingredients and let you choose to your own taste how much you want to go for. Some of the things that I have discovered through trial and error is I love to replace celery with fennel in a lot of my recipes, particularly my gumbo. I'm not a huge fan of celery, but I do love the anise flavor of fennel, especially when it's deep and caramelized. And I've discovered that actually that anise flavor in New Orleans gumbo does have some really historic roots to Italian heritage in New Orleans. Uh, also, it reflects some other flavors that you will find in New Orleans cuisine, particularly herb scent, which is another ingredient that I will add to my gumbo if I have it. It's uh, not something I always have on stock. But for me, it's really surprising and a wonderful taste to discover that that little bit of anise flavor in a gumbo is so delicious and actually brings it to a completely new level. Fennel is delicious. You talk about ingredients, when to splurge and how to cut corners. When is it worth spending a little extra? I'm not a huge drinker. I will start off by saying I don't drink every single day. Therefore, the alcohol that I keep on my bar tends to be a little bit higher end because when I want a margarita, I want to have the best margarita possible. So in my cooking show, I actually mention it's uh, Casa Dragones tequila, which my mom and I discovered in San Miguel de Allende. That's a place where I like to splurge. Sometimes splurging is also in terms of time and effort. For me, I like to spend a little bit of extra time and effort making sure that everything is cooked to the right point. And that one of my big things, my friends always make fun of me for this, I will push a sauce through a fine strainer every single time. Uh, I know a lot of people really hate that step, but I say that's a splurge in time that will give you so much better quality of a sauce. Now, on the flip side, I'm not afraid to cut corners, uh, especially if I've splurged on time in certain places. So in my cooking show, you'll notice that 
I use chicken fingers in my tacos because I've spent a lot of time making the tortillas and making the mole sauce. I don't have time to make a carnitas pork to go with it. I'm just going to buy some chicken fingers from the deli and call it a day. <laughs> well, I guess this is related to you're willing to spend time in certain areas. Another episode of Living the Dream is called Me Day. Now, some people might be tempted to get takeout on a self-care day so they don't have to worry about cooking or cleanup. What do you cook or eat on your me day? Snacks and sandwiches and cheese. Mm. I'm a cheese fiend. I always have probably like three to five types of cheese in my fridge. And so on a me day, I love to have a grilled cheese sandwich, which is probably one of the quickest and easiest things that I can make. And then little snacky things that you can eat on throughout the day. So I make a classic from my old cookbook, the goat cheese and pistachio covered green grapes, which when I make them, I always say, well, this will last me for a full week. And if they last 24 hours, I'm lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds scrumptious. At the beginning of the pandemic, many people stocked up on groceries, not knowing when it would be safe to go back out to the store. Are there any staples in your pantry that might surprise people? Canned tuna, specifically Ventresca canned tuna. This is something my mother and I discovered in Barcelona. Ventresca comes from the belly of the tuna, and it is the finest cut of tuna. I will tell you, before my mom and I went to Barcelona, this was circa 2017, I told her, oh, we're going to have to try all this canned seafood, this canned tuna. And she, you know, coming from the United States, coming from Arkansas, kind of thought of our United States American canned tuna, which is kind of like cat food a little bit. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And so when we tried... Uh, the tuna ventresca in Barcelona, we just fell in love with it. And that was one of the things that I think we brought back several cans of it from Barcelona. And actually, when we went to Mexico, we found a company out of Mexico that was fishing tuna off of Mazatlan and producing their own American-made tuna ventresca. And so we brought back several cans of that. That's something that I I just love to open up a can of it, and I'll eat it by itself even. (laughs) I love it so much. It sounds expensive. It can be. So when you travel to places like Spain or to Mexico, you can find it for approximately three to $5 a can. I have found uh, a company called Tonino on online on Amazon that you can get them for approximately $6 a can. But for some reason, if you buy them in the store in the States, you can really only find them at high end grocery stores and they will cost upwards of $10 a can. So I always try and buy it on my travels or online and keep them stocked in my pantry at all times. You have a few guest appearances on the show. Who are some of the friends and neighbors joining you? Well, I have a lot of my direct neighbors from my apartment complex, including Ben Holtst, uh, who provides music for the show. And I also have some of the people I work with at Dad's Garage, including Amber Nash, who plays Vegan Mima, a fictional character who's my fictional grandmother <laughs> in the show. Uh, and Lucky Yates, also from Dad's Garage, plays Bubblegum the Cat. I love it. You may want to keep the Ventresca tuna away from Lucky then. Tell us how people can watch Living the Dream. 
So the show will be available for free to watch on goddessblessyou.com. Right now, this is a pilot season of the cooking show, and I am working on pitching it to big producers. But for now, we are showing it free to the world to watch. There will be a new episode weekly. Today, right after this interview airs, is when we open up the website, and there'll be a new episode once a week for the next four weeks. Matt Terrell, your creativity just never stops. This has been such great fun. Congratulations on living the dream. Thank you so much, Lois. Atlanta artist Matt Terrell is the creator of Living the Dream. All four episodes of The Lifestyle Show will be available online at goddessblessyou.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Pearl Clegg will be our guest. The acclaimed writer and playwright will tell us about her role as Atlanta's first ever poet laureate. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.